thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we saw that the church in Corinth was not dealing properly with the sin of the believers in their church. Uh, They should have confronted the sin. They should have come to those in sin, seeking to help them recognize it and repent of it. But instead, they just decided to ignore the sin altogether and do nothing about it. Well, here in chapter 6, we have a similar problem. There are believers in Corinth who have problems with other believers in Corinth, and it's not like it was in chapter 5 where they're ignoring the problem. They're trying to do something about the problem, but Paul's going to reveal to us there's a proper way to deal with these problems and there's an improper way to deal with them. Last week, we noted the four steps we should take when a believer's in sin. Uh, We noted this because Jesus shared it to us. First, go to the person alone and tell them their sin in private. If they repent, wonderful. It ends there. The, the, The goal has taken place and That's where it stops. But if it doesn't, they don't repent. You go on to step two. You take one or two people and you approach them about this sin in their life. And if then they repent, it ends there. But if they don't, then you go on to step three and you bring this to the leadership in the church. And if the leadership comes to this person and they repent, then it ends there. But if they still don't repent after all of these steps, then you go to step four, which is the church leadership will ask the person to leave the church. The believers in Corinth, they were not following these four steps when other people sinned against them, when they had these problems with other believers. Instead, they were responding by taking these believers to court. They were going to these public secular courts and they were suing them and they were taking them to court and that's how they decided to deal with their issues. And so instead of going to them alone and in private and talking with them and then, you know, bringing another believer and then ultimately bringing it to the church, they said, oh, forget those steps. We'll just take them to court. Uh, We'll just let the secular courts deal with the problems that we have. Now, taking people to a public secular court was something that was very common during this time in the Greek culture, but it was not something that happened much at all in the Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, they wouldn't go to public secular courts. They pretty much dealt with everything internally. They would take their problems uh, to the rabbi who was ahead of their synagogue, and they would bring their issues, and they would trust his decision in what was going on. They would almost never go to the public secular court unless it was criminal issues, and they were forced to because of the Roman laws around them. But they always try to keep everything within the family, so to speak, instead of bringing it publicly into the legal system. But the Greeks, they were very different. They basically tried everything, every problem they had. They said, let's just bring it to the public secular courts. Historians tell us at this time, the public courts were one of the chief entertainments for the people in Greece. They they loved it. They loved watching what was going on. Large crowds would come, especially if there was a lot of juicy stuff that someone was accused of. And so they'd come and they'd be entertained by the whole process, by, you know, who's doing what against whom and are they going to be innocent or guilty of the crime? Now, when it comes to taking people to courts, our culture here in America is much more like the Greek culture than the Jewish culture. 
Here in America, we love to take people to court, and the statistics back it up. According to the American Bar Association, in 2006, we hit a great pillar, if you want to call it that. We had now one million lawyers in the United States, which is by far and way more lawyers per capita than any other country. Every year, there are over 15 million civil lawsuits that are filed in our country. That means there is a lawsuit filed every two seconds. Another lawsuit was just filed. Another one was filed. I mean, it's ridiculous how many civil lawsuits that we file in our country. The United States as a country has the highest number of lawsuits in the world, and 70% of the world's lawyers reside here because we love to take people to court. After an American lawyer had finished a guest uh, guest lecture uh, in Italy, some Italian lawyers came and approached him and asked, is it true that a person can fall down on a sidewalk in your country and then sue the landowners for lots of money? The American lawyer said, yes, that's true. And so these Italian lawyers, they start talking to each other really quickly in Italian, and, and the American lawyer doesn't know what they're saying. And so when they finally stop talking, he says, hey, would you guys like to come up to America and practice law? They said, no, no. We want to go to America and fall down on sidewalks. (laughs) Here in America, we definitely are clearly more like the Greeks, where we love to take people to these public secular courts and deal with our issues there. But we're also like the Greeks in the fact that we're entertained by the whole proceedings of the court. I mean, look at television today. We got Judge Judy, and you can watch her do civil uh, things with people, and she's quite, you know, abrupt and rude. And so we, we, you know, people will love to watch the, the civil cases that she does. Or then you have people glued to their TV when there's some big criminal trial. I remember when O.J. Simpson was on trial for murder, and you know, it seemed like everybody for months was just glued to the TV. It's like, oh, how's this going to turn out? What's going to happen? But we even like fictitious trials. One of the top-running TV shows is Law and & Order and all the spinoffs that go with it. And so you know, we like to be entertained by these things in our culture today. We're like the Greeks that made up the city of Corinth. Now, a common thing that happens with every church is that when people get saved... They come into the church and they often bring their habits and their lifestyles and the sins and the struggles that they had before Christ, they bring it into the church. And this is what transpired there in Corinth. Their habit was, I got a problem, I sue you. I got a problem, I take you to court. That's just the way we do things in the Greek culture. And so now they come into the church, they get saved, and they got a problem with another believer, and they say, okay, well, I'm just going to take you to court, because that's just what I've done my whole life, and now I'm just going to continue that practice as I'm here with other believers. And unfortunately, we often have the same issues here in America. We're so used to taking people to court and suing people and dealing with things within the legal system that we get saved and all of a sudden we have a problem with the believer and instead of dealing with it within the church, instead of going through the processes that we looked at last week, it's like, ah, just take them to court. Let's just go straight to that. Let's just go deal with it there and let the courts decide our fate. So the third main problem that the Corinthian believers had that Paul is now going to address, we've had divisions, uh, we've had church discipline issues, but now we have the problem of lawsuits. They're trying to deal with all of their issues with other believers by taking them to court and seeking the secular court to deal with their issues instead of bringing it to believers in the church. Well, Paul's going to reveal in these verses, this is not the way that we should deal with our issues with other 
believers. And it's not the way that we should be dealing today with our problems with other believers as well. So what Paul says here is a very good challenge for us today, but I want to clarify something before we get into it, because it's just like chapter 5. We jump right into chapter 6. Remember, chapter 5, Paul is speaking about believers dealing with sin of believers. And we noted the difference between how you deal with the sin of an unbeliever versus how you deal with the sin of a believer. As we come here to chapter 5, we need to be aware as well. When Paul is dealing with this not taking people to court, he's talking about believers dealing with believers. He's not talking about believers and their dealings with unbelievers. So Paul is not condemning the legal system. He's not saying that there's no instance where we should take someone to court. He's addressing how believers should deal with problems they have with other believers. And going to secular courts before we have tried to deal with it in the church is not the way in which we should do things. Well, let's see what Paul has to say here in chapter 6, starting in verse 1, and what we can learn. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So Paul here brings up the issue that he wants to address, but notice how he starts this. Notice the first four words that he used. He says, dare any of you. That's like us today. We would say, how dare you? How dare you do this? And when you use that term, how dare you or dare any of you, you are wanting to bring out the severity of something. I remember when I was younger, I said some extremely disrespectful things to my parents, and my dad's response to me was, how dare you speak to your mother and I that way? And it was very stern, and those words you know, resonated with me because I knew after that there was going to be serious punishment, but he was bringing out the reality of how dare you do this. The severity of what you've done is great. So when Paul says, Dare any of you, he's revealing the severity of what these Corinthians are doing. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. So here's the problem. These Corinthian believers, they would have an issue, a problem with another believer. And instead of bringing that problem to the church, like we looked at last week, they just brought it to the unbelieving secular courts and sought them to bring a judgment in their problems. Paul says, you go to law before the unrighteous. Now, this is interesting. The word unrighteous here is literally unjust in the sense of not justified before God, not saved. Now, I find that interesting because Paul is ultimately saying, why are you going to court, which you go because you want to find justice? Why are you going to seek justice in the courts through people who haven't been justified by God? Why are you seeking to find justice from people who haven't even been justified yet before the Lord himself? Can't you go before believers and deal with these issues? Paul's kind of mind-boggled that they would take their issues before unbelievers instead of taking their issues before believers. That they would go to people without any spiritual wisdom at all, instead of going to people with spiritual wisdom. That they would go to people who have no Holy Spirit residing in them, instead of going to people who do. Paul's saying, the problems between believers are not to be taken to secular courts. They should be settled with other believers in the church. 
Now, let me clarify a couple things before we continue so you don't miss the main point of what Paul is sharing in these verses. Some people read this and make conclusions that aren't in line with what Paul is saying. First of all, I want you to note that Paul is not saying the legal system's bad. This is not a, you know, don't use a legal system. It's full of unbelievers. It's bad. It's not something that we should ever use. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying that we should never use a legal system run by unbelievers. He's not saying that we should ever not go and uh, deal with that in that arena. Actually, when you're dealing with unbelievers, the legal system is very important. Unbelievers aren't going to come to the church and deal with your problem with you. They're not going to come before a believer and do that. If we didn't have the legal system, you know, there would not be justice in so many different things that unbelievers are doing. So we need our legal system. It's great that we have a legal system to work when unbelievers and us have problems with one another. So when it comes to unbelievers, the legal system, you can go and you can go to court with an unbeliever. There's nothing in the Bible that says that you can't. Uh, it's okay for a Christian to do that. Now you want to still follow Christian principles as you, you know, approach that, but there's nothing in the Bible that is saying, hey, if an unbeliever is coming against you or you have an issue that you need to deal with and get justice for, or you can't go to court. The Bible's not saying that. You can if you need to do that. If we studied through the book of Acts, we saw Paul himself use the legal system several times when he had issues. He brought it to the legal court of Rome. He went to Festus. He ultimately appealed to Caesar. He used the legal system in his day against the unjust treatment he was having from unbelievers, and he utilized that as his rights were, and he showed that this was something that he wasn't against by actually uh, doing it himself. So something important first to note is that Paul is not saying Christians should never use the legal system. What we need to understand is the focus here. The focus is You're a believer, you have a problem with another believer, how ultimately should you seek to deal with that problem? Now, with some issues, and we won't go into all of them, it might lead to the legal system, but the heart of it all is Paul's bringing out, hey, when you're dealing with an issue with another believer, ultimately that shouldn't be where you want to go. You shouldn't want to try to go to the secular courts and and deal with it there. You should hopefully first want to start saying, hey, let us try to deal with these issues within the church. Let's deal with this stuff as we looked at last week, that there'll be repentance and restoration. We can move past this, and we don't have to move down that next step. And so he wants us to see how should we be dealing with problems among other believers. Now, in chapter 5, Paul told us, hey, don't ignore problems. When there's sin issues, when there's problems between you and others, you shouldn't ignore them. But now we come to chapter 6 and we recognize, okay, there were things that they weren't ignoring, but now he says, well, well, yeah, but here's your other problem. There's issues that you aren't ignoring, but you're not dealing with it properly. It's not just don't ignore the problem, it's address it in a biblical way. You guys are addressing it in an unbiblical way. You're taking people to court. You're trying to approach it that way. And so you've missed it. Well, good that you're dealing with it to a, a step in the right direction, but you still have to deal with it properly is what we're now seeing here in chapter six. The proper way is to come before other believers to deal with it in that arena. The improper way is to jump to the secular courts and try to deal with it before an unbelieving judge. Now, there's one final thing I think it's important to clarify before we continue with this. Almost all commentators agree that what Paul is referring to here are civil lawsuits, not criminal lawsuits. He's dealing with civil issues that we have with other believers, not criminal. Because Paul's definitely not saying that as Christians we should have our own court system to handle criminal law. That's something that God has not given to the church. That's something that God has given as a role to the government. Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4 says this, 
For rulers are not a terror to do good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. There are several passages in Scripture which show one of the roles of the government, and there's not that many biblically. We've given way more in our culture than they should be. But one of them is to deal with evildoers, to punish crime. That's what they're there for. That's a very important role that the government has. These criminal proceedings, when there's someone who's a believer who would say, you know, commit murder against another believer, you know, that's not something we say, well, you know, we don't take people to a secular court. You have to go to court when that takes place. We could come alongside that believer and tell them, you know what, we want you to uh, repent of this. We want you to get right with God with this. But you know what, you're still going to stand trial for murder, and you're still going to have to suffer the consequences of what that trial brings. If we were trying to avoid that trial, we would be breaking the law of the land in doing so. And so something we need to recognize here is that, you know, Paul's talking about these civil issues, not these criminal issues. With criminal issues, you have to go through legal proceedings. That is something that's important. But with civil issues, it's not necessary, but oftentimes we jump straight to it, even in those areas as well. Hopefully, as Christians, we're not behaving towards one another in a criminal way anyway. Hopefully, we're not murdering each other. Hopefully, we don't have these things. It does happen. But as a whole, hopefully, you know, that's not the basis of our problems. Usually, our problems are much more in the civil arena. And so the challenge is, okay, within that arena, how are we going to seek to deal with our problems? Are we going to go straight to the court system, or are we going to seek to deal with them in the body of Christ with other believers? Well, now Paul is going to tell us why believers can do a better job of judging these issues than unbelievers. He's already said, you know, why do you do this? Why don't you go to the church? Well, probably the big reason is they feel like, well, these are the the people who are the educated ones and they have their law degrees and, and surely they're more equipped to deal with these issues than believers would be. Well, Paul is going to challenge that thinking. He says this in verses two through six. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So one of the big reasons that people don't want to go to the church to deal with the problem is because they feel like, well, the church doesn't have the skills that, you know, the legal system does and the lawyers do and the judges do. And so we'll go to them because they're more equipped to do it. And Paul's ultimately challenging that thinking. He asks some questions to challenge that thinking. The first two questions he asks is, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? As believers, something we need to recognize is that we have this connection with Jesus Christ. Once we believed in him, as Ephesians talks, we are now in Christ. And there's all these wonderful connections and blessings that come because of it. But with that, there's also our destiny, our future is connected to Jesus as well. And because of this connection with Jesus, we have this 
reality that we're going to be reigning with Jesus and we're going to ultimately be judging the world. Now, the Bible's not specifically clear as to exactly what this is talking about. Different commentators have different thoughts. Some think it's just referring to the millennial, the thousand-year reign, when we're reigning with Christ, and that's when we'll be judging people. But the, the point is not really when it's going to happen. The point is, Paul's saying, since in the future we're going to be given this role to be judging people in the world, why is it you feel like we can't do it now? If that's the future, if that's what we're going to be doing, if God's going to give us the capacity to do that in the future, why do you feel like we can't do it in the present with the different problems that we have? Now, the Corinthians are showing that they don't really trust believers by the fact that they're not going to them. They could say, oh, no, we trust believers to deal with it. Well, obviously you don't. You're showing that you trust the unbelieving court system better because you go to them before you come to the church to deal with the problems. The next two questions that Paul asks once again show how capable believers are to judge other believers in different matters. He says in verse 3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Once again, we have this connection with Christ, and somehow, this is another one where it's not specific in Scripture, but Paul's bringing out this reality that, that we're going to have this judgment upon angels. And you read in Hebrews and other passages that kind of allude to this. Now, I don't think this is speaking about the angels that were uh, following Christ. You know, remember, a third of them fell with Satan. I think it's talking about that faithless one. Uh, but there's the group of fallen angels that it seems like that at some point we're going to be part of judging them as we're connected with Christ. But once again, the point being, hey, if we can do this, if God's going to make us capable of doing that, surely he can make us capable of dealing with the problems that pertain to this life. So Paul brings up two things. We're going to judge the world. We're going to judge angels. And the purpose of this, these questions, is to bring this reality that we, as believers, are capable of judging the matters and problems that we face with one another. If God trusts us to judge the world and angels in the future, can he help us in judging our problems in the present? That's ultimately the argument that Paul is bringing out here. You really don't have to be a legal expert to resolve most of the problems that we have here in our lives as believers. If you know the Bible, you know what the Bible says about how you should treat one another. If you're mature in the Lord, if you have the power of the Holy Spirit, guess what? You can deal with the majority of problems that we face. Because when you get down to the crux of it, when you start talking with people about issues, ultimately, they're just not obedient to what God says. So if you know the Bible, you can bring them back to, here's the real root of the problem, Boom! That's what the Word of God says. Here it is. I mean, if you know God's Word, you're filled by the Spirit, you have the wisdom of God, you know, we don't have to have a law degree in order to deal with problems that we have among one another. So Paul finishes this point about believers and their ability to judge with two more questions in verses 4 and 5. He says, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Paul is saying, since believers are so capable of judging matters among other believers, why is it you're taking your cases to unbelievers to judge them? Paul says, I say this to shame you. 
You should be ashamed of the fact that you are abandoning the proper procedures that the Lord has given you of going to believers with other believers, dealing with it in that uh, arena, and going straight to the secular courts to try to let an unbeliever judge over your problems. And one of the reasons they should be ashamed is because this is such a horrible witness. It's bad enough that we have issues with each other which is a reality. We got problems with other believers. That's bad enough. But to take those problems and to bring them to the world, to put them on public display in these public courts and, and to you know battle it out in front of everybody, that's an even worse witness that we have in front of the world. Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, love for one another, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How's the world going to know that we are Jesus' disciples? By our love for one another. This goes completely against that thought when we're taking other believers to court in front of them. They don't see love for one another. They see this hate and animosity and these issues and wanting to get mine and what's right instead of showing and demonstrating love. And so this kind of contrasts and goes against ultimately one of the things that we're supposed to be doing. Sadly, one of the main reasons people claim why they don't want to be Christians is because of how Christians treat other Christians so horribly oftentimes. Paul says in verse 5, Is there not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? Not every believer is spiritually mature enough and wise enough to judge the problems that exist within different believers' relationships. But Paul's saying, isn't there at least one wise guy in your church? Isn't there at least one wise man that you could come to that's mature in the Lord, that you could bring your issue to, that could deal with this so you don't have to run to the secular courts in order for them to do it? Once again, I, I say this to your shame. If there's not somebody there, that's, that's sad. But I believe that there is someone there, so why aren't you taking advantage of it? Now, with this statement, I think it also clarifies that Paul's not just saying, go to any old believer with your problems, that he's saying you need to go to someone who's spiritually mature, someone who has wisdom from God, someone I would even say that both parties respect, because at the end of the day, if that person gives some kind of judgment or says this is what you should do, both parties need to respect that so that they will hopefully put that into practice. And so you want to bring it to someone who knows God's word, because that's ultimately what you want to come back to as what is right or wrong within the different issues that are going on, someone who's spiritually mature. Now, whenever there is an issue between two believers, you have the person who is wronged, and you have the person who did the wrong. So the next verses, Paul's going to address both individuals, and he's going to start by addressing the person who was wronged. So they didn't do anything wrong, they were wronged. But the problem is how they respond. And all of us are in this you know, situation. If you haven't been yet in the body of Christ, unfortunately, you will be. You are going to be wronged by someone. Another believer is going to wrong you. And the question now is going to be, how are you going to respond when you're wronged? Well, we've already noted how they've been responding. They've been just taking people to court. Well, Paul's going to say, that's not how you should do it. Let me tell you what you should have done. Verse 7. Now, therefore... It is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? 
Now, when another believer wrongs us or cheats us, there's a desire within us for justice, a desire within us for we want to get what's ours. We want to get you know back what has been taken from us. Now, there's nothing wrong with dealing with these things, and there's nothing wrong with wanting justice. The question is, am I going to go about getting it the right way? And am I, am I going to go about dealing with it in a biblical way, or am I going to go about dealing with it in the way that the world wants me to do it? Paul says something very important. When you've been wronged, and you choose to take another believer to court in order to deal with that, remember we're speaking of civil things, if that's the manner in which you go about it, notice what he says, you've already failed. And I find this very interesting because why do we go to court? We go to court to win the case. We go to court so we win the case so we can get what we think is ours, get our rights, you know, get our stuff back, or whatever it is that we feel that we've lost. We do that to win. Paul says, I know that's your mindset. You're going to court to win, but guess what? Just going to court, you've already lost. What do you mean you've already lost? You've already lost by just taking another believer to court. You know, I think the Corinthians were just like us in America today. We're addicted to our own rights. Oh, we have the right. We have the right. We have the right. And we so often want to hold to those rights so fiercely that it causes us to take other believers and deal with them in an unbiblical way. And Paul's saying, when you do that, you've already lost. Regardless of the outcome of your lawsuit, you've already lost because you took the other believer to court. You lose your testimony. You lose your testimony before believers. You lose your testimony before unbelievers. You lose because what you're doing isn't glorifying to God. You lose because you're more concerned about your rights than you are about reconciliation with the person who's your brother or sister in Christ. Notice what Paul goes on to say, and this is even more challenging. It would be better to accept wrong than go to a public secular court to deal with your problems. It'd be better if you were cheated than to demand your rights. Now, this is something that so goes against how we think in America, how we want to deal with things. We want our rights, and we demand our rights, and we love that we live in a country where we have rights. And so this is a hard thing when Paul says, you know what? It would be better to lay those rights down. It would be better to be wronged. It would be better to allow yourself to be cheated than to treat your fellow believer in this way, to approach the problem in this way. Paul is challenging us to do something very, very hard. Are we willing to give up our rights when we feel we deserve this, when we feel this is ours? Are we willing to give up our rights for God's glory and for a godly witness? You know, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But do we just pray that in the sense of, well, your kingdom come, your will be done, as long as, you know, I don't have to give up any of my rights, as long as I don't have to sacrifice anything, if I don't have to give up anything, praise the Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What if God says, you know what, you want my kingdom come, you want my will be done, great, you're going to have to give up this right here. You're going to have to be wronged in this issue. You're going to have to be cheated here. I know it's not fair, but what's more important to you? Getting what you feel you deserve or glorifying me? Getting what you feel you deserve or being a good godly witness for me? Are we willing to allow ourselves to be cheated so that God can be glorified? Are we willing to allow our rights to be taken so that our witness isn't tainted? 
Something for us to understand is that whenever we give up something for God, whenever we sacrifice for Him, whenever we do something where we feel like we're losing out because of it in order to bring Him glory, we never lose. Why? Because ultimately we're being obedient to God and God always rewards the sacrifice that we give to Him. When we lose is when we demand our rights. When we lose is when we're not really concerned about anything but ourselves and moving forward with what we think is ours, and we don't care the ramifications to God's glory. We don't care the ramifications to God's kingdom. We don't care the ramifications to our testimony. We just want what's ours, and we're going to do what we want to do in order to get it. That's when we truly lose. We don't lose when we're willing to say, Lord, your kingdom is more important. Your glory is more important. My testimony to this world is more important. And if that means me having in this situation to lay down my pride and to just say, you know what, I'm going to have to be someone who is cheated here, then so be it. Better a Christian lose monetary value than his testimony and bring shame to Christ. You know, when I was pastoring in Atlanta, a young guy in the church needed a car to get to work, and I met with him on a weekly basis and was trying to, you know, invest in his life, and um, I had a Honda Civic that ultimately I was looking to sell in a few months, and I said, you know what, hey, I'll sell this to you, and he hadn't saved up any money, and he's like, well, I got nothing to pay you now, but I can do monthly payments, and I was like, okay, I'll help you out. I'll let you do monthly payments to pay off this car, and, you know, we'll work together so you have a, a vehicle to get to work, and so, you know, we signed this bill of sale, and, you know, we had six monthly payments to to pay off the car and we agreed on you know what that sum would be and you know so we start the first month he pays me the second month he pays me third month comes along he pays half so you know this wasn't what we agreed on well you know i'm just struggling right now financially you know i'll get you it next month okay fourth month comes he doesn't pay anything so I sit down with him, and I regularly met with him, and just talked with him about the importance of, you know, being a man of your word and, and taking care of your debts, and, you know, still nothing changed, and another, you know, believer came alongside and encouraged him with the same things, and then the next month comes, and, you know, he still gives excuses of not having enough money, and so on and so forth, and, you know, it got to a point now, I have to make a decision as to how am I going to respond to this? Several months have gone by where the person who owes me, we've agreed, we have a legal document, I could take him to a civil court and try to get my money if I really you know, wanted to go down that road in that sense according to the way in which the world tells me, but I had a choice to make of how I was going to respond. But the biggest thing that drove my decision was, what's going to be my testimony when this is done? You know, How is this going to glorify God and, and what I do? And I ultimately decide, you know what, I'm just going to say, don't worry anymore. You know, the debt is paid, it's over with, I just moved on with it and decided to continue the relationship and, and encouraging him and helping him grow. Uh, and actually, a year later, uh, he came and gave me the rest of the money uh, that he owed me after kind of growing and, you know, maturing in this area. But, you know, I just thought, you know what? This is not something that I'm willing to pursue in order to destroy this relationship. And I'm willing just to be cheated. Which ultimately was. It was, I deserved it. You know, we made this agreement. But what's more important to you? Your rights or God's glory? Getting what you deserve or a good testimony? And this isn't just about whether you take someone to court or not. I think this is about any kind of relationship we have. What is more important to us? And I want you to ponder those questions because I think in certain countries, this isn't hard because they have no rights. But here in America, this is one of those issues that are so difficult for us because we're so ingrained into thinking, no, I want to get what I deserve and I have this right and I'm going to do it. And sometimes the Lord just wants to tell us, you know what? You need to give that up for me. You need to be willing to lay that down. You need to get 
that mindset out of your brain and just say, you know what? Your kingdom come, your will be done. What you want is more important. And if I have to suffer or if I have to sacrifice or if I have to be cheated in order for you to be glorified, then so be it. Well, now Paul's going to get to the other person. He starts by rebuking the believer who was wronged and then responded in a wrong way by taking that person to court. But the ultimate person who's really wrong is a person who did the wrong thing to the believer to begin with. And now Paul is going to address him. Verse 8 through 11 says this. Now you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says, you yourselves, speaking of these people who are doing wrong, cheat And you do these things to your brethren. It's bad enough that as a Christian you would do this, but even worse that you're doing it to another believer. This is the kind of behavior that unbelievers do, and that's why Paul goes on to give this whole list. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, junkards, revelers, extortioners, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And notice what verse 11 says, and such were some of you. Here's the point Paul's saying, this is what you used to be before you came to Christ. You used to be that person who wasn't going to inherit the kingdom of God. You used to be that person who lived for the, the sinful things of this world. And the whole key here is, that's what you used to be. But now... Notice what he goes on to say in verse 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You know, when we accepted Christ, three wonderful things happened to us. We were washed, we were sanctified, and we were justified. The Greek word translated washed means to be completely washed off or away. You know, I'm sure that many of you have experienced and love that feeling of being clean, especially after being filthy, you know, prior to it. And you get out of the shower and you're finally clean. It's just like, oh, that's great. I remember my brother and I, we watched the movie Rambo when we were younger. And I'm sure some of you have seen that. But in the second movie, uh, there's a scene where he's in like this mud wall and all you can see is his eyes. And then this soldier walks in front of him and he can't see him because he's covered in mud and he grabs a guy and kills him. My brother and I thought, this is the coolest thing ever. We want to go cover ourselves in mud and try these things on each other. And so there was only one place near us that had this kind of mud that we could do it. And it was this kind of stagnant, filthy pond that really stunk and, you know, wouldn't be the wisest thing to to get into, but we get into it and we cover ourselves with this mud from it. And we thought, this is so great. And then we start walking home and it's just drying, it's crusting all over our skin and we just smell awful. And then we finally get home and my mom's not going to let us into the house. And so we have to hose each other down as much as possible. And then we finally get in the shower. And I remember finally getting out of the shower after scrubbing all that filth off me. And it's like, oh, it feels so nice to be clean. But you know what? How dirty we were because of our sin is so much worse, but it's so wonderful to know, hey, though your sins were as scarlet, now you've been made white as snow by Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.5 says this, 
From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood. Our sins were washed away by Jesus' blood. That's something that happened when we believed in him. He forgave us. He washed us. He cleansed us. But he didn't just wash us. We were also sanctified. This word translated sanctified means to separate from the things of the world to God. It's twofold. It's not that we just separate ourselves from the sinful world, but we also separate ourselves to God. And this is what this word sanctification speaks of. But the reason that we can be separate from the world, the reason that we can have this relationship now with God is once again because of what Jesus did for us and the fact that we accepted him. Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. It's not a process we got to keep going through. It's something, hey, this has happened because Jesus gave his life for us, and now we can be set apart from the world and set apart to him. So we were washed of our sins. We were sanctified, but we were also justified. The Greek word translated justified means to declare one righteous just as if they never sin. You know, this is the one that's just mind-boggling to me, that God can declare us that, that we are now righteous just as if we never sinned. But we're guilty. We're horrible sinners. But he now sees us in his sinless son instead of sees us as we truly are. We're in Christ in that wonderful privilege of now being justified. God sees you now in a new light just as if you never sin. Romans 3, 23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So Paul is telling believers, man, look what God did. He washed you. He sanctified you. He justified you. So why are you living like you used to be? There should be a change in your life. The fact that Jesus has done this for you, we are now new creations. The old way things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. He's saying, you know what? Doing this to your brothers and sisters in Christ is not the way that you should be conducting yourself because your life now should be changing. Stop acting like the person you were before you were washed, before you were sanctified, before you were justified. And start acting like someone who has been washed of their sin, who's been separate from them, and who's been made just as if they never sinned. Before these Corinthian believers accepted Christ, it was normal for them to deal with any issue they have with someone by just taking them to the court system and trying to deal with it that way. Well, things have changed. Now that you've come to Christ, the way in which you used to conduct yourself, the way in which you used to deal with problems, now need to change and be focused on what does the Bible say about how we should deal with these issues. Now, the reality is there are always going to be people who wrong us. And I'm speaking of believers here. There's definitely going to be unbelievers who wrong us. There's going to be believers who wrong you, and you're going to have a choice to make. How am I going to respond to that? How am I going to deal with the sin that someone does against me? And the challenge is we need to take those problems before other believers and let them help us deal with them, not before the unbelieving legal system. As we looked at last week, come to them alone and in private. Hopefully it ends there. Hopefully they repent. Hopefully restoration comes. Okay, well, that doesn't happen. Well, bring another two believers. Deal with it again. Hopefully... Repentance, restoration, nope, okay, bring it to the church leadership. Nope, okay, well let the church leadership remove them from the church and see what happens. 
You know, let's follow the process of how we biblically deal with this instead of jumping straight into, well, let's just let the court system take care of it. We need to remember believers are very capable of judging these things. We're going to judge the world. We're going to judge angels. We've got the Holy Spirit inside of us. If we've been walking with the Lord, we can handle and deal with these things. But of all, I think we come back to what Paul says, if you go down that road, if you take another believer to court in these civil areas, guess what? You've already lost. You've lost your witness. You lost your testimony. It's not worth it, is ultimately what he's saying. Recently, we've had some deaths of loved ones in our fellowship. You guys already know of Cheryl's dad, Orlin, who passed away, and they just had the funeral uh, up in Seattle on Thursday. Jana's aunt, uh, Ethel's sister, um, Peg, she passed away. We just had her funeral yesterday. Jerry's nephew passed away. They're going to have his funeral soon. But just, you know, several people in our fellowship have just suffered loss of loved ones. Uh, and I just want to take some time just to close praying for them. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to lose loved ones. You know, the Bible says, you know, rejoice with those who rejoice, which is easy to do, but it also says weep with those who weep. And we want to come alongside. We want to be there. We want to, you know, recognize it's hard. It's difficult. We need comfort. We need the Lord. And so, you know, there's three different families and friends and people associated with, you know, those deaths. And so uh, I just encourage you, if you feel led, uh, let's just lift those families up. And then also, for those of you who don't know, uh, on Friday, Elena um, had some heart issues. She went to the emergency room. Uh, they found out that the, you know, electrical part of her heart was almost completely gone. Uh, and so they put a pacemaker in. Uh, she's back home now, last night, doing better. But we can also keep her in prayer as she recuperates from that. But uh, so let's just, you know, lift up those who are just dealing with losing a loved one. 